Good morning. You're thinking, Nathan, a whole chapter? Yes, a whole chapter. Good morning, beloved. It's a joy to open up God's Word, to be outside, to be all together. I love to see your faces. I missed many of you uh, last week, but here we are. Uh, And as providence would have it, here we are talking about uh, the authority of a king. Something sort of swirling around these days. And as a consequence, as considering the authority of this king, King Jesus, we will also consider the contrast of the great authority, King Jesus, and the bad leadership, the bad use of authority by the Jerusalem leaders. Abraham Lincoln uh, once said that if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Many have passed that test. More than we probably realize, but many, of course, have not. Which leads us nowadays to often question those of authority. Maybe some of you, if you're visiting today, uh, you're questioning me. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 3 and 4 says that when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout forth from the earth. Friends, that's what we're going to see in Jesus today. That's the kind of use of authority that we'll sing, see in Jesus. And that, of course, is not what we will see in those leaders of Jerusalem. And so, uh, beloved, I want to plead with you this morning, church family, and those of you that are maybe considering following Christ, I want to plead with you to trust the all-encompassing authority of Christ, to submit the whole of your life to him, to build your life upon him, that you too might flourish. And then from uh, your submission to the authority of Christ, you would then go on in whatever authority you have to then emulate Jesus' authority uh, as well. That's what we're going to see this morning. So remember where we are in the, the narrative of Luke's gospel. You remember this is the final week. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. Um, today, this, these events are either on that same day he came into the city, on Sunday, or maybe Monday. Remember, he's going to be handed over on Friday. It's just a few days away. Again, last week we saw the long-awaited arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. He came not on a war horse, but he came instead on the back of the foal of a donkey. He came, that is, as a prince of peace. He's going to bring peace in a way that the world doesn't expect. Uh, You remember that he wept over the stubbornness of Israel at large, and especially Jerusalem in particular, and the ways that they would not submit to his kingship of peace. Remember, he was weeping over how they did not know the things that make peace, which was submission to him and his glory. You remember they saw, Jesus saw his, their idolatry in action when he entered into that temple, what was supposed to be the center of their worship of the one true and living God. But instead, when he came in there, what he saw was man-centered religion. Using God to make money, to make a name for themselves. Jesus drove out those den of robbers as he began to kind of enact the promises of the new covenant. And you remember he stayed there in the temple teaching And as he taught, people hung on his words. And it was on one of those days, again, maybe the same day, maybe it was that Sunday or maybe the next day, Monday, we see the events of Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. And here we find that 
uh, people are seeing and hearing Jesus preaching the gospel. It says teaching and preaching the gospel. Teaching in the Bible is often used to explain, just sort of explaining the text. The preaching, the word preaching in the Bible is often used to herald what you see me doing right now. Preach the gospel. Jesus, we find, is doing both. He's explaining and heralding. He gives large, a large portion of his time to teaching and preaching the Bible, to teaching and preaching the gospel. And he does this because he wants people to know and enjoy the Lord. And he understands that this is done primarily by teaching and preaching the Bible, calling people to believe and to live out the gospel. And so we can imagine there Jesus in the temple teaching the word. Maybe, maybe he's teaching from the book of Leviticus, let's say. And he's rehearsing for them maybe the sacrificial system. And maybe rehearsing for them how that points to a need for a sacrifice that is answered in himself. Calling them to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, as Jesus has preached the gospel, so must we. So must we. May people find us teaching the scriptures to each other and to others. And may people find us preaching, heralding the good news of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods, in our living rooms, or on the streets, wherever, calling people to Jesus to know and enjoy the Lord. May he find us doing that. Well, the town elites have reared their ugly heads again. Uh, they've heard about Jesus, what he has done, cleaning out that temple. Maybe they were some, maybe the people in the story were some of the people that got cleaned out. And they come back, maybe later in the day or that next day, and they come in there and take a look at verse 2. They ask a very reasonable question. Tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you authority to clean people out and stay here and teach like this? In other words, they're asking, like, who do you think you are? Where do you get this? Show us your police badge, as it were, Jesus. Give us, show us where your authority is coming from. And that question, guys, in verse 2, that's the thread that Luke will pull at throughout the entire chapter. That's why I have all of this long passage together. It means to answer, this chapter means to answer that question. What authority does Jesus have? And the chapter means to show us that Jesus has authority in and of himself because he is the Lord himself. That's the conclusion that Luke wants us to see in verse 42 and 43. He is the Son. He is the Lord. And so Jesus, in response to their question, he does what he often does. He, he answers a question with a question. Was John the baptizer's baptism from heaven or from man? So these guys kind of huddle up. They're like, ah, what should we say? If they say from heaven, they know that by default, they know that John's baptism was meant to prepare the, pe prepare the people for Jesus. So they don't want to say that because they don't like Jesus. Jesus is taking their authority away. So they huddle up and they say, well, we can't say heaven. But then they say, well, if we say from man, all the people know that John the baptizer was a prophet. And so they'll stone us to death. So we can't say that either. And right there, guys, don't miss this. This is so important as we go through this passion narrative. Right there, you see the idol of these Pharisees, these religious leaders. They need people. They need the people in order to keep and enjoy what little authority they have. They need them. So for them, for those leaders, man is big and God is small. They don't want to disrupt anything, and so they say, well, we're not going to answer. And Jesus says, well, I'm not answering your question either. Friends, you can't treat Jesus like a toy. 
You can come to him with questions, most certainly. You can come to him in order to understand him. But Jesus will not allow you to come to him as though you were in authority over him and still try and answer all of your questions. Jesus is patient, he's humble, but he's still the Lord. These leaders were not interested ultimately in the truth. They were interested in taking him down. And so Jesus was not going to throw pearls to swine. These guys cannot even so much as come to a position on whether or not John the baptizer is a prophet or not. Jesus knows, well, then if they can't even handle that question, they're not going to be able to handle me as Lord. So he doesn't answer the question. And so not only will Jesus not let them toy with him, he turns the tables on them and he shares another parable. That's what we see in verses 9 to 19. The parable of the Lord's vineyard. This parable here, guys, that, that would have been known to the Israelites as a whole probably, but this parable of the vineyard would especially been known to these religious leaders. They would have known about this parable because it reflects a parable or a teaching, I should say, from Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is employing that teaching. Once again, teaching the Bible. The parable of the vineyard was taught again in Isaiah 5, and here Jesus is again using the scriptures. He's putting his enemies in the story of that parable so as to make clear where they stand in relation to him. Y'all remember him doing this back in uh, Luke 15, the story of the prodigal, where he puts them in the story? He does the same thing here. The owner of the vineyard in this parable is most certainly meant to be God himself. The tenants were meant to be these hypocritical leaders. If you look at verse 19, it makes it clear that they knew, these leaders knew that, they, that Jesus was talking about them. And so the Lord planted the vineyard of Israel, as it were, and these leaders have used their borrowed authority to destroy prophet after prophet that has come to the vineyard to call people to give the Lord of the vineyard what is due him. So in other words, what Jesus is doing here, guys, is he's, he's saying that, that as people have come, as God has sent prophets to his people, and they've rejected him, they've rejected those prophets time after time. And that's what the parable is doing. They have rejected, the leaders of Israel have rejected the prophets that have called people to repent and believe on the Lord. And so instead of acting like tenants, these unjust rulers act like they're kings themselves. They, they act like they own the place. And so they want, to, they want to keep the Lord's vineyard for themselves. Look at verse 14. It says there that they want the vineyard. They want the world, as it were, for themselves and for their own glory. This, is, this guys, is what unjust leaders do. This is what bad leaders do. From husbands to heads of state, they take what is the Lord's and they try to treat it as though it's their own. They take what is God's and they treat it like it's theirs. They rule in their ways for their own group of people, for their own glory. And they destroy any minister of the word that seeks to call people to turn from sin and to trust the Lord. They destroy any minister of the word that seeks to call people to reject their unjust authority in order to follow the true authority of the Lord of the vineyard. And finally, we see after they... After they uh, push back all those three servants, we see that they are even more cruel and even more criminal to that beloved son that comes to take what is his. Now, friends, this should be a clear illusion. For those of us that have been falling through this, this beloved son, that language, that should be familiar to us, right? We've seen this at two important points in the story of Luke. 
You remember at Jesus' baptism, when the Father says to the Son, this is my beloved Son of whom I am pleased. And you remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Lord, the Father says of the Son, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. So clearly, in the parable, this beloved Son that comes to take what is His is referencing Christ, Jesus. Where the father sees Jesus as his beloved son. And so what we see they do, the tenants do, is they throw this beloved son out and they kill him. Now Jesus has told us, hasn't he, time and again, that when he comes to Jerusalem, what are they going to do? They're going to crucify him. They're going to hand him over. They're going to crucify him. And then he's going to raise on the third day. On the third day. And guys, again, Jesus knows. He's teaching this parable maybe on a Monday. And this is just a few days away. And he knows it's going to happen. And then look at verse 17. As he's telling this parable, and he's put himself in the parable, the beloved son, and they know that he knows he's going to be killed by those tenants. Look at verse 17. He looks right at those priests and scribes, and then he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. Rejected cornerstone. Jesus understands himself to be that rejected stone that will crush all those that reject him, and be, at the same time, the foundation of all those that receive him. That's what Jesus understands in that verse. It's right there. Those are the two options, friends, that Jesus gives us. Those are the two options. The earth is the Lord's. It is his vineyard. It is not ours. We are the tenants of his vineyard, of this world. The question is, friend, which kind of tenant are you? Are you the kind of tenant in the vineyard of the world wherein you try and inherit the world by destroying the Lord's messengers, keeping the fruit of God's vineyard for yourself? Or do you know that you are a servant? Do you know that you are a tenant and that all you have is of grace and you give to the owner, you give to the Lord that which is his? Well, friend, your answer to that question is dependent entirely on how you treat that beloved son that was sent into the vineyard of the world. Will you reject the beloved son or will you build your life upon him? That are the only two options the Lord gives us. Think of your life in the corner of a vineyard. You have one life for the glory of God. Here you are given a stone. Imagine in your life you're given this stone to build with in your corner of the vineyard. What will you do with that stone? What will you do with it? Do you see Jesus, that is, as the beloved son? Or do you see him as a threat? Trying to take away what you understand to be your individual rights. Do you see that stone as antiquated religion? Do you see him merely as a teacher and not the beloved son of God as Jesus represents himself? Friend, if you do, then Jesus makes very clear that you reject the cornerstone that God has provided. You therefore then choose to build in the vineyard of God's world with your own stones. Therefore, as Jesus says, the stone of Christ will crush you, will break you when it comes. That's verse 18. You are left to bear the punishment for your rejection of God's beloved son. Jesus says there in verse 18, everyone, circle that word everyone, everyone who falls on that stone, the stone of the beloved son Christ, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. 
If you don't submit to the whole of your life to the kingship of Christ, you choose to build on shifting stand and the storm of God's anger for your rejection of that stone, of that beloved son, that will come upon you and crush you. That's one option, but there's another option. You can choose to build your life upon that cornerstone that Christ saw himself to be. You can choose to, to build your life upon the rock of Christ Jesus, the beloved son of the Lord. That's the other option. That is, you don't reject the son as beloved, but like the owner, like the father, you love the son by submitting the whole of your life to him. As the owner of this world and your life, you give to him what is due him. He's the gracious owner of the vineyard and you're offering your life to him. You are working and keeping in this vineyard of the world. And you're working for him, not as a tax, not as a payment, but as a glad-hearted living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, a response of thankfulness and trust to the vineyard owner. You choose to build your life not on your stone, but on the cornerstone, on Christ. You understand that if you don't submit to his rule and his good authority, that you have no cornerstone and therefore you are broken to pieces. Those of us that trust him, you you submit to the king of glory by trusting in the sufficiency of his death. Friends, Jesus is handed over just a few days from now in this story. The beloved son is handed over. The beloved son has come to the vineyard and the beloved son will be killed on the cross. Jesus knows it in advance. He's prophesied it time and again. And he understands himself to have come for that purpose. To make a payment for the sins of all those that trust the Lord. We deserve, I deserve, you deserve, we all deserve punishment from God. And God in his graciousness and kindness has sent his sin to be the payment for those that believe. He knows he's going to be destroyed and he's willing to be destroyed so as to take the payment that is ours. That's the kindness of God that shows us how he's trustworthy, how he's a good king. And so for those that trust Jesus, that repent and submit to him, receiving his forgiveness on the cross, you build your life on that cornerstone. Restoration Church, this is our life together. Our life together is built upon Christ and for Christ. If we as a church reject him in any way, we reject the cornerstone of our church. We break to pieces, as Jesus would say. But if we submit the whole of our lives to him, we have that peace that we talked about last week because he's the king of peace and we're his glad-hearted servants in his vineyard. We are his church. We are his assembly. But what, you ask, might this mean for the kings and queens of this world? How do we relate to them? If Christ is our true king and our true authority, how do we then relate to the kings and queen of this world? Which is to say, how do Christians relate, how does the church relate to government? That's exactly what we see next in verses 20 to 26. And another attempt to catch him in the sight of the people, the scribes and the chief priests ask him if it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. They ask Jesus, should we pay taxes? These leaders knew that if they could get Jesus to say, this is verse 20, if they could get Jesus to say, listen, don't pay the tax, don't worry about it, you know, God's your king. They knew that if they could get Jesus to say that, they could deliver him up to the Roman authorities and they could be done with Jesus. 
And as we will see, though, even though Jesus says in in essence, go ahead, pay the tax, we are going to see that when Jesus is handed over to Pilate in chapter 23, verse 2, they're going to use this instance to say that he says to reject Caesar. And that, of course, is not what Jesus says. Look at verse 23. Jesus knows this whole question about what should we do in paying taxes. He knows this is a game. He knows it's a game. He knows they're trying to trap him. And so he takes a denarius, which would have been a day's wage, and he says, whose image is on it? We might imagine in our day, someone sort of asked Jesus, and he says, give me a penny. Whose image is on it? Abraham Lincoln's. Who's on it? I think it's a quarter. Is it a quarter? George Washington's on the corner. Jesus then says, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And so in the presence of the people, these scribes and Pharisees, once again, they tried to trap him and they couldn't. And instead, not only did they not trap him in the presence of the people, Jesus exhibits once again his all-encompassing authority. Instead of catching him, look what we find there in that passage. We find in verse 26 that they marvel at him and they become silent. And guys, so should we. So should we marvel at the glory, at the wisdom, at the might of Christ. So should we be silent before him. Not just because Jesus is clever. Not even just because he's wise. But friends, because he uses his authority for the good of the world. And not like these bad leaders, not for his own personal gain. You say, how so, Nathan? How is how did you get that? Well, friend, Jesus understands what we see clearly taught later in the Bible in Romans 13. Jesus understands that government is a God ordained entity that was designed to uphold that which is just and to take down that which is unjust. Government, in other words, is God's tool. It's not man's invention. Jesus affirms that by saying, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give it to him. In other words, give to God the things that will help them do their job to uphold justice. That's what he's saying. In other words, for us, that would be pay taxes. Drive the speed limit. And when you don't, you get a ticket, pay it. Obey building codes. That is difficult for us these days in this building. Where immigration and education and foreign policy is upholding the flourishing of all a nation's people. Not just some of them, all of them. Support that government. Romans 13, Romans chapter 13 says government is given the power of the sword to uphold justice and take down injustice. And as they do, we as Christians should give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. This pleases the Lord. We should be good subjects, good citizens in that sense. And so while Jesus has all authority, he understands this because he knows that government is one of his servants. And so he's happy to call the people to broadly support governmental justice. Yet on the other hand, Jesus, though, would not have his people to give to Caesar, to give to government that which would uphold injustice. Now, we see this clearly taught in numerous places in the Bible. So, for instance, when Peter and the apostles are told by the government to stop spreading the gospel, they don't do it. They said that we must obey God, not man. We see the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, when the government says to kill babies. The Hebrew midwives say, no, we won't. 
So just because, in other words, friends, just because something is lawful doesn't mean that it's lawful. In other words, just because something is law doesn't mean that it's moral. Doesn't mean that it's just. This is easy, right? So we can think about slavery. We can think about Jim Crow laws. We can think about abortion. Now, these things may be lawful, but friends, they denigrate human beings created in the image of God. Therefore, if Caesar calls us to bend the knee in these instances or anything else that denies the authority or the character of Christ, we resist as people under the greater authority of Christ. And in so doing, beloved, we then give to God that which is God's. See, when we think about this verse, this giving to Caesar, that which Caesar give to God, that which God's, when we think about this verse, we tend to think that Jesus is drawing two separate circles, sort of two teams. And we tend to think that when he says this, he's kind of putting the things that are Caesar's over there on that team, in that circle, and then he's putting over here the things that are God's, those things over there. But friends, that's not what Jesus is doing. Government, again, is an agent of God's, just like marriage is an agent of God's. The church is an agent of God's. Human beings are God's, right? This is his vineyard. Therefore, government isn't a separate circle from that which is God's. All of it is under his all-encompassing authority. There isn't a circle of our lives. There's not like a circle for worship over here. And then like a circle over here for my job and a circle over here for my family and my relationships and a circle over here for my leisure. No, all of it is under the good authority of Christ. God made all things. God upholds all things. It is his vineyard. He owns the vineyard of the world. We are his blessed tenants. He has graciously given us our lives and he has set each of our lives. He has set each of us in one corner of his vineyard. Again, not as employees, but he means to make us his children that are to steward every corner of the vineyard for his glory and our neighbor's good. And as we do this, beloved, as we give to God that which is God's and do the best we can in our little corner of the vineyard for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, as we do this, the world flourishes. All things are God's and underneath his all-encompassing authority are many things. One of those important things is government. They do have an authority in our lives. And so in God's vineyard, there is a kind of corner that are Caesar's things. And insofar as it represents justice, we give to that. But where it doesn't, we don't. But in all things, we give to God that which is God's, which is the whole of our lives in the whole of the world. Now, in a broken world, just as it was in Jesus's day, because Caesar's government was a mess. No government is perfect. All of them are broken to greater or lesser degrees. Therefore, beloved, listen closely. When it comes to this election, we come to the ballot box with three things crystal clear in our minds. The sovereignty of Christ, the justice of Christ, and the unity that we have in Christ. Those three things have to be priorities in our hearts and our minds. The sovereignty of Christ, the justice of Christ, the unity of Christ. So as Christians, we believe underneath the sovereignty of Christ, we agree on that which is just. Which is to say, we must agree as Christians on that which God has revealed to be good and right and true. We have to agree on that. We have to likewise agree on that which is not good. Not 
not, which is bad, which is evil, right? We can't say, as I say, woe to those that call evil good and good evil. We can't do that. We have to agree on whatever God says is right and whatever God says is wrong. And yet we will be confident. We will be 100% confident that you and I, we will all disagree on the way in which we might carry out that justice. That's going to happen. But we have to agree on that which is just. We're going to disagree on the way to carry out the justice, have to agree on what justice is. Therefore, that brings us to the third thing. When it comes to those disagreements, uh, we consider that third idea that we take into the ballot box and out of it, namely our unity in Christ. As we just saw, right, those of us in Christ, we are built upon a sure foundation, on the cornerstone of a sovereign Christ. Jesus is our good authority. He's our king. He's our brother. Therefore, we are family in him. We are bound together, beloved, by something thicker than a ballot box. Bound together by something thicker than a political candidate, a temporal nation, or a tribe of some sort. We are bound together by the blood of the all-authoritative King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how we are bound together, by his blood and for his glory. And so therefore, on November the 4th, when we wake up, we wake up in confidence of who is really in charge and who our family is and where we are going. And that gives us a kind of peace amidst our disappointments, whatever they may be on that morning. Don't forget that. These nations are raging. Christians themselves have, I think, been a bad witness in these ways. We've got to remember these great three sovereign truths. Christ is sovereign. Justice is true. And unity is altogether for us in Christ Jesus. The nations rage, Psalm 46 tells us. Kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Brothers and sisters, remember that in these days. Well, just as soon as Jesus has silenced the kind of conservative scribes and Pharisees, we then get the kind of liberals of society. They speak up on the other side. Enter the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So they are sad, you see. I had to say it. You'll not forget it. You'll not forget it now. It's a good tool, silly though it is. These guys, they come speak up, right? These guys are analogous to those of society that think the miraculous is unreasonable. They think themselves intellectually superior to fantastical things like bodies raising from the dead. They think, come on, man, you don't really believe in that stuff. That's the kind of folks the Sadducees are. But you'll notice they're not so intellectually superior as to completely jettison Scripture either. In verses 27 to 33, they employ the teaching of what is called uh, the Leverite marriage. It's taught in Deuteronomy 25. Basically, the teaching here is, is in the Old Covenant, a widow who has no children, if, he, if her dead husband has a brother that's not married, she should get married to him, and then they should try to have children. And on and on it goes. And the point of the Leverite marriage is to try to make the perpetuation of the name of that family go on so it doesn't die out. If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, that's what's going on between Boaz and Ruth. But here the Sadducees, they use that teaching and they add some seven husbands to the widow where all of them die and no children comes. And they ask Jesus this question. They're thinking they can stump Jesus by saying, whose wife is she in the resurrection? 
Now, I'm imagining this is just my little creativity, but I think the Sadducees have probably done this to dozens upon dozens of Jews, and they've stumped them all, and they think, ah, we'll get him now. And what we read is Jesus' response in verses 34 to 40, that what we see in in response to their question, we see the all-encompassing authority of Christ. And the way in which we see it is by Luke's illustrating for us Jesus' ability to authoritatively explain Scripture and then, as a result, explain the world. Look down at verse 40. You can see it. Like it to the Pharisees, Jesus' answer here leads the Sadducees to get quiet and cause all the others to no longer dare ask him any more questions. That's the point of Luke. He's trying to help you see that every question that comes at him, he's able to answer it. That's where his answers are going. But how does Jesus answer the question? Whose wife is she? Well, first off, notice notice it's interesting that Jesus actually answers the question. Aren't we? We're so used to Jesus not even answering the question. And so the very fact that he answers the question shows us that the matter of the resurrection is critical in his mind. Everything hangs on the resurrection. He knows that everything hangs on this doctrine. Paul will later say that no resurrection, no salvation. And salvation, as Jesus, right, we just saw that, Jesus was preaching in the synagogue. That's his mission. And so speaking of salvation, notice in verse 35 that not everyone who is resurrected is ushered into the heavenly state. You see it? His answer is qualified by, quote, those who are considered or counted worthy to attain to that age. Meaning, as we said earlier, some are built upon the cornerstone of Christ, and then all the others will be resurrected to an eternal death. So Jesus there affirms the resurrection. But in the final state, or the heavenly age, That is, those that are counted worthy, the final state that we as Christians wait upon for Christ's return, he answers the question by saying, there will be no marriage in heaven. I've heard quite a number of people say, I want to still be married to my husband or my spouse in heaven. Well, Jesus says there won't be marriage in heaven. Why, though? What's his answer? Because, he says, there will be no more death. Amen, right? Amen. We all hate death. Some of us are still grieving the loss of loved ones. You heard Joey pray that earlier. But guys, no one hates death more than Jesus does. And the way in which we know that is because he, the beloved son, entered into the vineyard knowing he was going to be killed, but he did it so as to overcome it. He willingly entered into the vineyard to be killed so as to overcome death. And so the call, sons are God, those of us that are in him, we are like angels. I understand the ESV uses that word equal to angels. Quite frankly, I don't think that's a good translation. A better translation would be to say like angels. The point of this passage is not to kind of give us any sort of significance as to whether or not we will be over or under angels. I think 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear that we will be over angels in the heavenly state. Here, what Jesus is saying is we will be like angels in the sense that we will go on forever and there won't be any marriage. And so Jesus' resurrection is given to all of us that believe in order that when we see him, we will be like him in body and spirit. So we do not believe that we're just going to float around on clouds in heaven in spirits. We were going to have bodies on a resurrected earth. And when we see Jesus, the point of, or the sting of death is taken away forever. That's what we wait on. 
Jesus' death and his resurrection defeats the greatest enemy of all, death, like no other. His resurrection is called a first fruits, the thing that all of us want. No death, that he has purchased. And then just in case he wasn't clear, in verse 37, he then goes on to say, but that, but that, uh, but those that, uh, but that, that, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. So there, friends, we see once again Jesus is affirming who wrote the Pentateuch. Jesus affirms that Moses wrote it, and he recalls Jesus does an incident of Exodus chapter three, where the Lord reveals Himself to Moses, and there Jesus recalls that the Lord is not the God of the dead, as evidenced by the name. God gives to Moses and the way uh, he describes himself to Moses. The name that God gives to Moses is, you can see it in verse 37, is Lord, Yahweh, which means I am. God's name is I am. I always have been. I never die. I've always been. I'm eternal. He always lives. And the manner in which he describes himself to Moses is by saying that he is he is the god of abraham isaac and jacob in other words after their deaths he still is their god and so abraham and isaac and jacob they still is (laughs) you with me they still going right absence in the body is presence with the lord second corinthians 5 that's what jesus is teaching and so brothers and sisters in christ we serve jesus the resurrection and the life That's our king. Nobody has overcome death like him. Nobody. You and I must meditate. Guys, we have got to meditate more on this teaching of the resurrection. We don't do this enough. I don't do this enough. We've got to think more about this teaching of the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is the great hope of the New Testament. You go back, you go read through the book of Acts and what will you find? They are preaching and teaching the resurrection more than they are even the teaching of the cross. So we look back, yes, at the cross of Christ, but the cross secured our greatest hope of all, life eternal with God. And that life will be on a resurrected earth with resurrected bodies serving a resurrected Lord and King. And guys, if we lose sight of that as Christians, we lose sight of our entire faith. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is pointless this whole church service right here is meaningless if jesus doesn't raise from the dead and so guys as this pandemic presses in more and we think more about death hope in eternal life with god hope in eternal life with god the secure future that we that he has attained for us guys everything is out in front of us All the good is out in front of us. We can have confidence because the king that we worship has all authority and we know that he has authority not just because he says so, not just because he models it, but because he overcame the worst enemy of all, death. Think about that resurrection. Hope in it. Pray it. Meditate upon it. And just in case you were second-guessing Jesus' authority as the all-encompassing king, Jesus makes it clear in verses 41 to 43. See, just in case you didn't think you didn't get enough of Jesus' questions of questions, he asks another one. How can they say that Christ is David's son? And then Jesus affirms the Davidic authorship of Psalm 110. That's what he quotes there in verse 42. For David himself says, 
in the book of Psalms. And that's a quote from Psalm 110. Once again, guys, we see Jesus has affirmed the authority of Scripture, the authorship of Moses, and here the Davidic authorship of this psalm. And Jesus uses Psalm 110. My suspicion is most of you are confused by this verse. Can I get an amen, right? (laughs) What's Jesus teaching here? The point is quite clear, but how did he get there? Well, the way in which he does this is Jesus takes this verse and he explains that if King David the great king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, if King David was a third party in a conversation between two lords, one lord said to another lord, then David's son must be, you guessed it, the lord. If there is a king, and that king has two lords above him, and they're talking to each other, then the son, that forever king that comes from David that was promised in 2 Samuel 7, whatever king that comes from him, these two lords talking to each other, David is listening to that. That king that is a forever king must be a lord. He must be the lord. Jesus, friends, is pulling the Trinity out of a Davidic psalm and he's ascribing it to himself. Guys, this is the kind of mic drop moment for Luke. He's shown that Jesus has authority over the scribes. He has authority over the Pharisees. He has authority over the Sadducees. He he authoritatively interprets scripture. He has authority over the Roman government. He has authority over death. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. That's who Luke, that's what he's doing. He's kind of summing it all up for us. And just in case you don't understand his authority, Luke ends with a note on what bad authority looks like. Bad or wrongful leadership or authority is mainly interested in taking from people for personal gain. That's 45 to 47. Taking. That's what bad leadership does. We see, look at the verse there. The scribes, they wear clothes that draw attention to themselves. You know, maybe wear coats with pocket squares in them. Nice coat, Nathan. And they love that. They need it. I wore this, by the way, because I thought it was going to be cold. I'm now getting hot. But the scribes, they wear clothes to draw attention to themselves. They love how people say nice things about them in the marketplaces. You can imagine maybe a pastor strolling through the mall going, oh, look at there, Nathan, what a great guy. Hey, Nathan, you're awesome. They get the best seats in the church. They get the best seats at Thanksgiving dinner. Their authority is mainly interested in receiving, not giving. That's the big idea of what Luke's doing. This is what makes bad leaders bad leaders. You can see it right here in this passage. It's the difference between giving and taking. Good or trusted authorities give. Bad authority takes. And when they do, Jesus makes so clear. In the name of God, when people use their authority to hurt people, Jesus makes so clear they receive a greater condemnation. That's God's justice. Every instinct of humanity, right? They look at a situation like Hitler and they say, man, he killed himself. I wanted him to get it. Well, the instinct is satisfied in God's eternal justice. He will get it worse because of the way, the poor way in which he used his authority. God's justice satisfies all things. Bad leaders take, good leaders give for the good of humanity, for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. And so as I close, I just want you to see the contrast between the good authority of Christ 
versus the bad authority of these religious leaders. I just want you to see. I'm going to make this really brief. When we evaluate the two uses of authority, we see stark contrasts. The chief priests and the scribes were scared of the people. And so they schemed in secret and were insincere in public. Jesus, though, was not scared of any people. Therefore, he served them in public and in private, no matter how they might treat him. One of the best ways that Jesus served them was by openly teaching all of the people, all of the scriptures, so that some might be saved. We see that so clear here, don't we? He's openly teaching. Jesus is going to tell them later when they take him, like, I've been teaching in the open all the time. What are you worried about? But one of the ways we see the beauty of Jesus' leadership is the way in which he's taking the Bible and he's openly teaching. He's not trying to hide things. He's teaching it openly. You compare that with the chief priests and the scribes. They hid the scriptures. They hid the Bible from the people. And instead, they used the Bible to hurt people, to steal from people. The chief priests and the scribes loved greetings in marketplaces. Jesus loved the praises of the people in the slums. He loved greetings of the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners like me. Chief priests, they sought the best seats in the synagogues and feasts. Jesus taught his disciples to sit in the worst seats. Chief priests used their authority to use people. Jesus, who has all authority, used his authority to serve people. And one of the best ways we see that is in the cross of Christ wherein we see the beloved son who has all authority willingly entering in the vineyard to satisfy the penalty for the sin of those that trust him in order that he might give them resurrected lives and bodies with him forever. Not just because he had to, but because he wanted to. He gave, he used his authority to give, to bring about the flourishing of all things. And this is why that verse in 2 Samuel is so beautiful, because it reminds us of the authority of Christ. That when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That is how Jesus used his authority and that what he has done and what he is doing in our midst. And so may you and I, may we submit to his good authority. We can trust him given the way in which he's used his authority. We can trust him and we ought to trust him. And then, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've repented and believed, whatever authority you have, whatever it is, from your children to your school to your job to your family, whatever it is, go and use what authority you have in the same way that Jesus did. Use your authority for the good of people, not to take to people from, from people, but instead to give something to them, life to them. Trust him, submit to him, and then go and model him and wait for his resurrection, our resurrection in which he has already secured. That's our hope. And that's the day we wait on. And so let's now pray to him and ask for him to do that. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he illustrates us, he illustrates that to us in the way that he interacted with these bad leaders. We thank you that he used his authority to lay his life down for sinners. And we thank you that, that, that by his authority, his life was taken up in a resurrected life. And we thank you that those of us that are counted worthy to go to that heavenly state, we too will get to taste that resurrection. And we pray it would come soon. 
But until then, may we trust you by submitting to all of you and then using what authority we have in the same way he did, to give, not to take, for your glory and our neighbor's good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.